Welcome, TTB community. I am Elliot Shibley, and here with me, as always, is the extremely prepared Robert Domena. Thank you. You know why I did that? No, why? Because I forgot to get an adjective for you. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But it works. So your adjective for me was being extremely prepared while you were not prepared at all. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. For the record. For the record. Before we get into the episode, TTB community, I want to point out our sort of new and improved website where we have a tab that identifies travel gear that we have used, that we admire, that we like, that we enjoy using, and we want to share with you. If you click on the links and end up purchasing any of those travel items, we end up getting a little tiny percentage of that sale. So we appreciate it. And our reviews are genuine. The backpack, for example, we use to travel around Peru, the water bottle, uh, I, I have one of my own and I bought one for my sister for this past Christmas. So these items are something that we enjoy using. In addition to that, our book a trip tab will now allow you to book trips with any of the travel agencies that we have interviewed on our podcast from Limo Gourmet of Peru, Costa Costa, who does trips from you know all of South America and Spain, uh, Trek Hoppers Peru, JJ Travel in Iceland. You're now able to book directly with them through our website. That's that's all I have to say, actually, Elliot. <laughs> oh, all right. Oh, wait, you know, no. no. So I almost forgot last week's trivia question. It was for Valerie. Name either of the two book series Valerie loved relating to space travel. If you answered either Ender's Game or Rama, you got it right. And we will be sending you a Traveler's Blueprint sticker, and we'll talk about you in our in our Instagram story. Thank you for participating, and tune in to this episode for. The next trivia question. So our guest today talks about her recent project in Tanzania and a few others in Africa. Uh, she focuses primarily on sustainable development and how the oldest tribe in Tanzania lives off the land. Our conversation primarily looks at the pros of travel against the environmental impacts of travel. And we get into a discussion on travel, sustainability, and just life in general. So without further introduction and without ruining the conversation, please welcome Tasha Goldberg. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Tasha, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's it's great to have you here this afternoon. Uh, so we were kind of talking about this earlier before the episode started, but you and Angel, who we had interviewed late last year of Bloom Stories, had actually been talking for a year to two years prior to you coming on the show and prior to Angel coming on the show. And she actually had brought up our name and then kind of told you about us and we started chatting through Instagram, and we really like what you've been doing uh, over the past years, few years or so. And we're very excited to talk to you about your transition from being an herbalist and filmmaker to now being in the sustainable develop and sorry, sustainable development realm, and looking at ways communities can be more sustainable. Yes, thank you. Um, that's exactly. You know, it's it's a big world, but it's also a small world, you know, so I, the experience of traveling around and getting to be in different places and then also the connections, you know, like I randomly came 
became friends with, a, with, with Angel and then she connected me to you and then we find out that we actually all grew up very close to each other, but we're talking about places that are all over the world. So yeah, I mean, it is a small world. We just found out that we're essentially living two towns apart from each other. Yeah. We're, we're like a half an hour up. away. Yeah. You grew up a yeah. uh, town away from where I live now. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's that amazing. Was, it's so funny. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about your transition and why travel is important to you and how travel is innately tied to what you're doing today? Sure. Um, so I guess like the beginning for me is just that I studied herbalism and ethnobotany. Ethnobotany is a little bit... Um, it's a little off the radar for a lot of people, but basically it's the study of the relationship between the, between people and plants, ethno and botany. And herbalism was always sort of my preferred, most interesting relationship, how plants can be used to heal people. And I loved, loved, loved studying it. And part of the um, library of ethnobotanical research is about studies of different places around the world and how they have used plants throughout time and throughout history as um, how they use plants for healing, for food, for building, all the different ways. So I've always enjoyed this connection that we have with plants. Um, In my studies, I kind of wanted to figure out in a modern current society, the way that we relate often to our environments or to plants is through businesses it kind of businesses create this filter on the relationship you know so if you instead of like going to a root doctor to buy the medicines that you may need or going to you know dig them up yourself you might go to whole foods (laughs) and buy a, a plant medicine and then read on the label anything that you might know about the plant you might just learn from the business so I really was like interested in this way that businesses create a filter in the relationship Um, so that led me down a path where I started a business called sustainable solutions and it was really focused on natural ingredient supply chains. So beauty products, um, um, natural foods, all different natural ingredients that, um, understanding from the beginning to through the different supply chain, which now, you know, we're learning that we don't have to be so linear. We can create circular economies as well, but we can talk about that at another point. <laughs> um, but anyway, so this, um, you know, naturally got me into travel because if you think about the origin of where a plant ingredient comes from all the way to like where the actual product that includes the ingredient, you will be traveling, you know, it's not often right next to each other. Um, and so the, like, as I pursued this business where I was consulting and helping people, you know, businesses in their natural ingredient supply chains, I began traveling. And in, 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 in the beginning, I was just going to where the ingredients were from and creating positive impact programs. Um, and I quickly learned that I had a lot to learn. <laughs> so, um, you know, even with really amazingly pure intentions, it's just, you have to be so careful, especially when you start to go into other people's um, homes and um, and you travel outside of where you're from and you go as a guest to somewhere else, you really don't want to impose what you think would be positive for somebody else. Like you really have to learn how to listen. You really have to learn how to um, learn and observe 
when you're a guest somewhere. So the dynamics of becoming a traveler mixed all, all of a sudden with the dynamics of becoming somebody who could develop sustainable strategies and, and manage projects. And with all of that, I decided I need to learn more about global politics because it was really affecting this international projects that I was developing. And at that point, I didn't want to go back to school because I didn't want to go into debt. So I thought <laughs> a clever way for me to learn about international politics would be to be a reporter because I, I understood reporting to be like, you have to really learn a lot to be a reporter, but you're allowed to ask the questions like that's reporting. So, you know, um, that led me to becoming a reporter for uh, United Nations negotiations around sustainable development. And um, yeah, so that's, you know, it's kind of, it might seem a little bit like to a lot of people, <laughs> it seems like I have moved in this like very random way through my, my career. But to me, it was very natural, you know, just one, as I was became more aware, um, I would learn what else I wanted to learn. And this like pursuit of wanting to learn and interest in the world around me led me to each next step. Hmm. Yeah, That's exciting. Um, back in, I guess it was April of last year, or is it March, Bob, when we had Scott on. And the ethnobotanist. Scott, yeah, yeah, Scott Light was an eth is an ethnobotanist in Peru. And that was the first time we had heard the term. It was, yeah. And it is, it's a very interesting field and something that I hadn't known much about, but I think it's really intriguing. I mean, we all have a relationship with plants innately. I mean, beyond just the trees in our yard or the grass in our lawn, um, everywhere our food comes from is plant-based, whether it is our meat or if it's our vegetables. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and, and, and the products that we use, paper, pencils, like a lot of what I, while I was studying ethnobotany, a lot of what I realized was it isn't necessarily creating new relationships. It's just becoming more aware of what you're in relationship with. And then as you become more aware of what you're in relationship with, you it, it becomes easier to make choices about how you want to be and what you want to do because you understand the impact, not just in a myopic, you know, this is all about me, but really I'm in relationship with the world around me. I'm connecting to plants in this way. I'm connecting to the resources in this way. So ethnobotany and sustainability really like work together to me. Are they really connected? The two connected really easily for me. Yeah. I'm going to take us on a little side tangent. Okay. Uh, are you familiar with the TV show, The Good Place? Um, so do you know Kristen Bell? Yes. So oh, she, yeah, I think I've seen the ad on, on yeah, yeah, and it's okay. Ted Danson. And yeah. so the whole the whole idea is that they're in the good place and when people die, there's this whole point system that they have to follow. And the more points they get in their life based on good decisions they've made, they get into the good place or the bad place. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> down later in the I think in the third season, they actually get into how nobody in the last 500 years has actually gotten into the good place because our lives are so complex and the decisions we make, we think we're making good decisions, but they're actually bad decisions. Like when we think we're buying a banana mm -hmm. because we're eating healthy, but that banana, if you're in the United States, did not come likely come from the United States and it came from right. a farmer that is living in poor conditions and then it has to be transported so, so many hundred miles and then it actually adds negative points and mm -hmm. everyone's going to the bad place. Yeah. You, is, that you, that I, you, is that why you gave up bananas? 
<laughs> because of this TV show? No, no you stopped eating before, bananas. You this did? is before the TV show. Okay. All right. I still, I still drink coffee though. There are some things that I haven't given up. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, that's legit and it's true. I, and I think that, you know, this is really like the crux of what has inspired me to like continue where I'm going is literally how it is that we kind of look at information. Like it is a lot of pressure to feel like that there's a good place. I mean, the show sounds cool and I'm not like <laughs> saying that it's a bad, like anything, but for me, that's a lot of pressure to feel like there's a good place and there's a bad place. And there's a lot of um, competition in, in, in the world that we're in to be like, okay, follow me and I'll take you into the good place or I'll just shame you relentlessly for making choices that are putting you in a bad place or putting me in a bad place. Mm -hmm. And all of that is just so heavy. And it's really like not actually seeming to change behavior, which is really what we're talking about is how we affect our own personal choices that are not just about like our own choices where, you know, you want, you're hungry, you want to be healthy, you eat a banana, but the banana comes from far away, carbon footprint, all this stuff is a lot of really good information. But if it makes you feel like a horrible person, it starts to not be as helpful. Exactly. And so part of what I've been doing in is, is, is trying to learn from people how and what it looks like to make good choices, to be able to take in all of these global challenges that we are facing and make good choices and be resourceful and be resilient and be creative and be innovative. And it, of course, it looks different in all these different contexts. And there is never going to be like, just, you know, do this or don't do this and you're good. Like that is a very unlikely end, end game plan of what's going on right now. But to feel empowered and to feel aware gives us this place of value. And like, I think that it's a little bit out there, but I really think that like what is going on right now is giving us the opportunity to look at how we value things. And as, as travelers, we have this way of like, we're not busy with our daily grind and our commitments. And we're looking as we travel out into the world, like we're looking, we, oh, that's beautiful. The way that that natural, you know, those trees or those birds or it's interesting architecture like we're opening ourselves to being inspired and like and it's 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 um intoxicating because we're really making ourselves available to appreciate what's around us that has nothing to do with us it's we're a traveler it's not our home it's just a place that we get to you know discover and learn from and admire I kind of want to bring that into how we think about sustainable development, you know, and the stories that are I'm helping to present in this series, Evidence of Hope, is, isn't, it isn't as if every single person is going to relate to every single thing, but it's an opportunity to kind of, wow, you know, be inspired and have the, the information that we do need to recognize or reconcile with come, but come on the wings of beauty and be inspired. I think that there's I think that as travelers, we get that, you know, we kind of, that's, that's our, um, our, 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 that's why we get so addicted to travel. It's so fun to admire. Yes. Well, and we've talked about this with a few of our guests and uh, I always grapple with it myself because I'm big on sustainability in general, being efficient, not only with resources, but also with time. Mm. And travel is one of the most resource heavy 
things that any individual can do. You, mm-hmm. as soon as you take a flight, you are increasing your carbon footprint by a large amount. And the only way to avoid that is literally just by walking or biking. Mm-hmm. And even with biking, I mean, your carbon footprint is still, it's still there because of the resources that it took and energy to make that bike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's why we need this program, you know, like evidence of hope. We need to push. It's the legislation that's holding us back. I mean, we can't do anything without the the right legislation and the right push for the technologies that are going to allow travel to go in a more sustainable way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first film that I released in the series, we are very aware that it's kind of ironic to talk about sustainability and then travel. I mean, this came up a lot for me as a reporter in topics of sustainable development. Like I remember the first time I covered um, the United Nations Forum on Forests and there was just like stacks and stacks and stacks of paper. And every day, all the documents, they would have like a change in the comma or, you, you know, like some textual changes. And all of a sudden there was like new documents and new documents. And I was like, this doesn't make sense. You know, or if you're going to a meeting about ocean sustainability and everybody on the dais or the panel has plastic water bottles, you're like, come on, we could, we're not putting <laughs> two and two together here. Yeah. But then it's also important to look in the mirror, like you're saying, and be like, what, I am also part of this, you know, like I recognize that travel is very carbon intensive. So what it, you know, what I have done for the first film is that we calculated the flights and the, um, the, the carbon emissions for the car and, you know, basically all of the travel and we offset it with the project, um, with the project that we were documenting. So Carbon Tanzania is one of the partners in the project that I feature in the first film. And it was, it doesn't mean like, you know, just do whatever you want and then offset it. But it is, that is sort of one of the ways that I have reconciled this sort of irony of wanting to travel, but also being aware that this is, you know, a carbon intensive, lifestyle. Absolutely. And there's two websites that I, I sometimes use to look at it. One is Native Energy. And you oh, can yeah, actually, that's, yeah. They're, they're connected to carbon. So Native Energy is like an umbrella and Carbon Tanzania works with them. So, that, oh, okay. we're ta- that's it. so they're all, yeah, big world, small world. Yeah. yeah. And then the <laughs> other one is carbonfootprint.com. Yeah. Uh, both of them, you can actually input your mileage, uh, mm-hmm. your flight, what kind of, I think you can do what kind of plane it is, uh, how many miles you drove in a car, what your estimated MPG. And it puts all of that into your uh, carbon footprint, your tons of carbon, and then calculates the cost of that. And then it you know, gives you some facts on how you could potentially offset it. So yeah. I don't th- think anybody should stop traveling. I think traveling is incredibly important to growth, to being uh, interconnected and in touch world, not just individual countries. And just find ways to you know, better make better decisions at home regarding sustainability. Whether, Bob, you and I talked about this the other day, getting a community-supported agricultural box every week in the mm-hmm. summers that are produced and grown in a farm less than 25 miles away from you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that, it, yeah, to keep to continue to always want to um, 
make good choices and find out what those options are. I think is, you know, instead of it feeling like heavy, I think it's exciting, you know, like there's so many ways that we can make good choices. And um, I, I, I studied greenhouse gas accounting at one point to, because this was also really interesting to me and, and to find out ways that we can calculate the carbon intensive, um, the carbon footprint, but also the water footprint. And, you know, it's really important to figure out how to be aware of like making choices for ourselves as well as how that impacts the world around us. Yeah. So can we get into more about your sustainable development project in Tanzania that was in the Yaeta Valley, which yeah. is Northern central Tanzania, correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So basically, so, so I was invited to visit uh, Yaeta Valley because the Hadzabe people, which is one of the oldest indigenous communities in the world, um, they won, they were one of the winners of the 2019 United Nations Development Program Equator Prize. So the Equator Prize um, usually happens every other year, but this year, um, because it's 2020, they're doing an extra cycle. But it's an incredible award. I've always loved um, the first time that I was at an award ceremony was in, I think, 2012 in Rio. And it was like just so exciting to see people who were on the ground making really good choices, but not because they wanted to get a grant and not because they wanted to become famous, but because they were surviving. And this was the way that they made the their path for their own um, pursuit of happiness, wellness, well-being, and sustainability was being awarded by the United Nations Development Program. And um, anyway, so this year I was um, the, uh, asked to be the director of photography to go and film and learn how it was that the Hadzabe had, had become one of the winners. And so I spent um, time in, in the bush and it was amazing. It was really amazing. I, I'll be honest, like the assignment that I was going to get, you know, like maybe I was going to go to this location or maybe I was going to go to that location. It kind of kept changing. And, um, and, and when I finally got the assignment and I was told that I was going to go into the bush, I was excited. And I was also like, Hmm. <laughs> so like no electricity and like, you know, n no running water. So this will just be like really interesting to be the director of photography in um, the bush. <laughs> you know, like it was exciting, but it was also like um, intimidating. And um, it was um, probably, yeah, it was like one of the most amazing experiences for sure that I've ever had. How long were you there? Um, I think that the, the total was 10 days. So um, we were actually inside the bush, I think, for a, a week. And then there was like a couple of days in the beginning and a couple of days in the end that we were in a nearby town to kind of like prep and get ready. And we went in with a um, like safari company and they, you know, helped us prepare. And they had like in the in in the truck, I guess you would call it, they had like power strips so that we could like charge batteries at night and that type of thing and you know you bring in your water you bring in all your you know your tent and your pillow and but yeah I mean 
all of the like things I thought that I needed and like my comforts and you know, all of that just sort of really was so much easier than I ever thought would be possible. It was so easy to connect. Um, it felt amazing to be so far away. I mean, every, in every direction that you looked, you just, there was no, there was no planes, there was no roads, there was, you were just in nature. And there's, just so few places that are left in this world where you can really be away from all of the like uh, development and really be inside of nature. And the community was um, fun and funny and 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 happy to have us, which is you know they were they were winning an award, so they were like really had a lot of dignity and pride about what they had accomplished. So they were happy to share with us, which was like great for documenting and storytelling and um you know there was it was it was a really really beautiful experience and I also learned a lot about where I wanted to go with like my own so evidence of hope is is my project that is about documenting these positive stories around sustainable development to kind of hold up the evidence that it is possible. You know, we, we can address global challenges successfully. It, it's possible. People are doing it and we can see these stories and we can celebrate what does work. Um, and so it was a really great opportunity for me to have an idea, but then also to be able to start understanding what and how it works and um, how I work and, and what I can learn about the communities and about myself and about this project that I was developing. And yeah, the, the, um, the, there's a few things that I think about Yayetta Valley that were really special um, besides just being so far removed. It really is a community. And, you know, the, this particular community, they've been, um, about 40 to 50,000 years living in the exact same way, you know, as hunter and gatherers. And that's, you know, that's a little hard for us to conceptualize, you know, it's yeah. really a long time. And in the entire time of their oral history, there's never been a single account of famine. So they know how to be sustainable, <laughs> you know, so this like, they really know how to take care of themselves. They really know how to live in their environment. Their environment's pretty harsh. It's not a lot of water very dry, thorny, you know, it's not like, you know, I lived in Hawaii for 17 years and like, you know, it's really easy to grow things, you know, it's, it's a different kind of environment. The bush is, um, a little more hostile. it's a little bit more and they are just so connected to knowing how to take care of themselves. And one of the ways that I really notice is that they have that sense of inclusivity and of community. So they own the land communally, which is like, amazing in and of itself because they are setting the, the foundation by owning something communally, then you develop communally. It's not like there's just going to be one person that's going to have to decide if they're going to share or if they're going to just prosper on their own. Like they develop as a community, which is really amazing. And everything is shared. I could tell you guys a funny story if you want. Sure. About yeah. <laughs> so the concept of like being part of a community, like it's, even that it's a little hard for us to kind of conceptualize because we live in a, you know, when I say we like, you know, living on the East coast, like where the three of us are from, like, you know, it's like you have friends and you have community, but like, it's not like you're so interconnected and that you depend on each other for survival. You know, that concept is a little lost in our 
modern society on the East Coast. Um, so it was really fun and cool to be around this indigenous community that literally depended depend on each other. Like if if somebody went hunting and got some meat, it was for everyone automatic. Like there, you know, the concept of sharing is just automatic. And even though like I was listening and I was there, I, I didn't really quite get it until like the very last night. So the last night that we were there, I mean, we kind of had like a big group because, you know, our team, there was like, let's see, like three, four, five, six of us that were visiting, you know, as part of the documentary team. And then there was like, we were camping with uh, a, a group of Hadzabe people. And the last night that we were there was like super beautiful, full moon, you know, we we're in the bush and, um, we made, they made a big fire and they were, you know, sharing lots of songs and we were all dancing together and they were kind of like teaching us their dances. And, you know, it was just fun and lighthearted and really like, you know, it wasn't about getting the story or filming. It was just about like experiencing the night together and really enjoying each other's company. And um, after we were finished, you know, we kind of said good night and there was just a few of us still by the fire. And I thought, I'd like to share something with, you know, I, I want, I had that feeling that you get where someone like has really shared a lot with you and you want to give something of yourself as a way to like recognize and honor when people share with you. And I, when I was in Hawaii, I studied hula, the, the Hawaiian dance. So I thought, I, I wanna, I'm going to dance a little hula for the couple of people that are left around the fire. So I told um, one of the guys who was you know, a, a big character for me. Like I talked to him a lot throughout my time. He's in the film a lot. And I said, I'm going to dance a hula. And he was like, okay, hold on. Let me just like go get the whole village. And I was like, oh no, no, no. Like, it's okay. Like you don't have to get the whole village. Like I just was going to dance a little. He was like, have you learned nothing? Like you, you have to share. Like you don't just like give a gift to like four people. Yeah. Like you give a gift, you give it to everybody. And so it was just like a really, like, I got the lesson because I was like so shy. I was like nervous, you know, cause I had to like <laughs> set myself up to like do a show for the entire village. But it was in the end, it was really, 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 really special. And they, it was also really cool because it was like, as much as we had been talking through our time together beyond like the words that we could use, like just dance like I feel like we connected and were able to talk to each other the easiest and it was like they got the nuances of the dance they like you know at the part that was kind of funny and frisky they were like laughing and clapping like you know it was just like the art of the storytelling in hula transcended language and they just yeah. got it and it was so nice to be able to share something but it really like <laughs> I was like okay yeah you, if you're going to share something, you share it with everybody. <laughs> I don't think many people can say they, they danced the hula for the oldest indigenous tribe in the world. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it was, it was like one of the most like epic moments because then afterwards they kind of made this like circle around me and, and like made up this song or maybe they, I don't know, if, but there was a song they were singing and they like incorporated my name and they were like, Whole, like you know just like letting me know like I was like welcome to come back and be part of it and like you know that's you know that's the thing is that like I have this whole concept that I want to share with evidence of hope but it's so genuine like all of these places that I've traveled the thing that inspired this series is that 
people are good and open and warm and generous and they want to show you their homes and their lives and when you say to somebody i admire you or i think what you're doing is inspiring there's this like incredible exchange of dignity and and beauty and you know i i the experience that i've had for the last like 10 years or so of traveling the world is that people are kind and wonderful and beautiful and i just wanted to find a way to share that and 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 open that up for everybody else to experience. Uh, are you familiar with the book Tribe by Sebastian Junger? No. No. I should write, I should write it down. That sounds interesting. It, it's very interesting. So he's a military guy, and he he discusses the importance of tribes, and he he references the military a lot because that's sort of what they do. They they create these incredibly tight knit bond, this this bond among the, the men or and women who are you know serving together, and he dives into the history of why these tight knit bonds are so important to us as humans. And he goes, you know, he goes back in time to indigenous days where that's what we needed to survive. And we were so reliant upon one another. And there was this sense of community and, you know, um, what is it called when like all the mothers, all the women in the group would take care of the kids together. I I forget. There's a, there's a, there's a term for it. So like, you know, the men would go and hunt and all the women of the tribe would would tend to the kids together, regardless of whose child it actually was. It was a group project. Um, and so even today, you see signs of human beings wanting that very tight-knit tribal feeling. And you see it with, with sports teams. Philadelphia is yeah. the perfect example of that. Yeah. You know, we're from Philadelphia. That's our tribe. We hate Pittsburgh. We hate <laughs> Dallas. That's their tribe. Uh-huh. We like our tribe. You know, and, and you see it with cities and you see it with countries too. You know, we're the United States. We don't like you because you're there. And it's, in a way, it's very primitive, but it's still true. And, and you, can, it's, it's, you can see it. Um, it's very interesting to me to, to see how, how people's minds work and we still can't break free from that, that tribal thing. And I, and I think it's good in a lot of ways. It gives us a sense of community. But as, as a country, you know, as the United States grows and we have these major cities, it seems to be like we're moving away from it. And that, seem, that seems to be the root of the issue with sustainable development in modernized countries. Yeah, I mean, I think that it was really interesting that like there was no, I posed no threat to this community. I was there to honor them, to appreciate them. And they instantly opened up to me. Like they, like literally that experience, like I was around this group of women and their children and like grandmothers and like, they just passed their babies to me. And like, it was like, you're a woman, you can hold the babies. Like it was just automatic. But I think that, I don't know, but I think that part of it is that they're so secure with after this like 40, 50,000 years of knowing that they can take care of themselves, they can be sustainable, they can provide for themselves. I'm no threat. Whereas in politics and in what we like, what you're talking about where, with our United States and how things are in sustainable development, there's like uh, when there's a, a, a threat, it, you have you don't you don't open yourself up to like oh yeah come on into this you, you know this openness into the tribe. It isn't like that. It's like no no my tribe and I hate your tribe because I'm going to protect my tribe. Whereas I think that what's underneath that is really insecurity and instability. And when you spend time in communities that are so resilient and so strong and so able to adapt to the challenges that are coming or that have arrived, that part of that is that comfort or that confidence that, yeah, you, we, of course, like 
you it, it's a lot easier even just like individually it's a lot easier to make a change if you don't like create this whole story that's usually based on something insecure that you're experiencing like you you know like like let's say like my grandmother she lived to be 103 years old at one point we realized that plastic bottles were bad and that you shouldn't use a plastic bottle for the environment and also that there's chemicals that were leaching out of the bottle into the water so she was like <laughs> okay so get me a reusable bottle like she was down with it she didn't have any resistance to that because it wasn't there was no like she was not invested in the plastic company she didn't have like she didn't care if she had to give up that habit or change like she was just she was adaptable because she had that comfort in her and herself in a way and i feel like that I see that in the indigenous communities. I see that in people who are really able to make the changes that need to happen because it's like, you know, one of the things I think is really important is tradition and innovation, not either or. You can't just do things the way that they've always been done, but you can't just like forget about tradition. You know, there's a balance. Tradition and innovation usually together are creating the solutions that are actually sustainable. And being able to do that is like letting go of what you think Sometimes the people get caught in this ego, you know, people, tribes, governments, that they had a plan and they are going to stick to that plan, even if the plan sucks, you know, and it's like not, it's kind of, you know, defeats the purpose, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we have a lot to learn from when we can see what has worked, what is working, even when what is working is an ad adapting and changing and it's not staying the same. You know, I think that we can derive a lot of lessons and we can scale them to other places. That's part of what's important about oh, uh, acknowledging these communities or acknowledging these projects is that it, these are things that we can, that can be scalable. You know, Carbon Tanzania, which is the partner in the project with the Hadzabe, they've taken those lessons and they have applied them to other parts of Tanzania and worked with other communities and, um, had huge success and that huge success isn't just about like financial but it's significantly lowering deforestation significantly increasing wildlife in those areas you know those are that's the evidence that this is uh working so i wanted to mention um i spent six weeks in tanzania uh in college as part of a study abroad and it was further south and i actually tried to map it to see how far south it was compared to the Ayata valley and mm -hmm. it came up with uh no known route available <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. because of how rural <laughs> each area is but one of our projects there it was with the landscape architecture program at penn state and our like final project for that trip was working with two villages at the base of this national park, which had been utilized as a resource for hunting, for pulling fuel, as in like wood and other resources for collecting insects and grubs, all kinds of food, all kinds of other resources. And once it became a national park, they essentially limited and eliminated the ability for the villagers to use the national park and access it. And our project really focused on how, what was the best use of the land that the village had with the resources that they had. Was it better to do ecotourism or was it better to focus on the production of 
like useful crops such as rice and burn the rice husks for energy. But then on the flip side, the rice husks for energy ended up causing more lung infections and lung diseases. And both villages combined had a population of about 10,000 along this corridor of valley in this central part of Tanzania. And it was just a really interesting way to realize the relationship of people with the land and how they can use it to better help themselves and essentially just sustain their current way of life and still be happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that that was a, that, that is, you know, that like we often like going back to the good place, you know, we have this tendency to think of things as like, it's either good or it's bad. And there's either a right way or there's a wrong way. And a lot of times, like when we evolve the solutions that are really sustainable, it has the, it's a, it's a blue and it is created from, uh, you know, like I said, tradition and being innovative and understanding what the resources are and what the opportunities are. And, you know, like you could have a great concept and then, you know, like this happened a lot in South Pacific, like where there would be something like a sustainable collection of a nut that could create an oil that was going to be really high end. But if there's no market for it, then you're like doing a lot of damage by lifting up a local economy to deliver them to a non-existing market. It creates a real bad fallout. So there's a lot of um, important elements in strategy development. I think what is most important is in ensuring that going back to this idea of inclusivity, it, it is engaging whatever the strategy is, that it engages the right people or the right stakeholders. And a lot of times what we've seen in politics and global politics particularly is that local and indigenous culture have not necessarily been engaged in a way that they contribute to success. And there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of map that out. And there is a lot of effort to ensure that those voices are now part of the evolution of different conventions, laws, you know, regulations. But that's another way that we can understand inclusivity, like beyond just the tribe or the location as a global community, as, um, you know, people of, and the way that we develop as a, as a global community, like we have to value the contribution of what different people know because there could be things that science has a way or engineering has a way or um, banking investors, like all these different people and different roles have a lot to contribute. You know, speaking of like being from the East coast, like that Thomas Jefferson used to have these um, this, this thing that he would do when he was in office that I always thought was really awesome. And he would gather different people, like the farmers, the bankers, different people that were part of his constituents and get them together to talk out the challenges that they were facing. And this is like such the obvious way to go about things because you can't know what everything about everything, but you can respect and value what other people can contribute and work it together until you get together the soup that really nourishes everybody, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I want to jump back into Yaida Valley for a little okay. bit and then move into your other upcoming projects. Um, but just to put into perspective some facts about the Yaida Valley, the uh, Hadzabe people are about 1,000 to 1,500 in population. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that it could be a little bit more. It's a little bit hard to like know exactly how the consensus works, but I think that that's that's fair. You know, definitely in the region where I was, that would be a fair. Okay. And then the area that was set aside for the Ada Valley where they are able to practice and own their own land Mm -hmm. and do whatever they want with that without government interference or other private interference is about, it's actually about the size of Philadelphia. If you look at the metropolitan area and so (laughs) Philadelphia has a population of 1.6 million and the population in that Valley, the same area is about one one thousandth of that which is it's pretty pretty wild so i don't it's not like necessarily... no pun intended by the way yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the people living in the ada valley the the hadzabe aren't necessarily it's not the perfect amount of land like they'll eventually reach a carrying capacity where sustainability may become an issue but it sounds like they are able to understand that and they've been able to understand that for 40 to fifty thousand years yeah um realistically we can take stuff from what they have done. We can take theory and actual things and apply it to our daily lives, but they don't have electricity. They don't have uh, vehicles. They typically don't use gas. They don't produce their own clothing, it doesn't seem. Um, Mm -hmm. So trying to figure out ways to make our lives in the modern age as sustainable as possible without, and people aren't going to give up access to TV, access to a car, access yeah. to a home that has heat and air conditioning. So what can we do as a modernized civilization? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that another thing to think about is also the relationship between the way that the Hadzabe are living in their land that, I, that, I, that they own as a community. They were actually the very first community in all of Tanzania to, to sign this... Um, it, it, this 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 particular customary it, it's the land certificate is like a customary rights to communally own their land they were the very first in all of tanzania but the way that they're living is creating a positive effect for everybody on the planet because if you know carbon emissions that are created and and created in one place and and sunk or um addressed mm-hmm. in another place like we're all very connected so the the environment and the acreage that they're maintaining as a forest and that they're avoiding deforestation by maintaining this forest is absorbing the carbon emissions from the atmosphere that could be created from anywhere in the world so it's really connected we're, we're much more connected than we think of course yes like we have to think about our own decisions so some of the things that we can look at the Hadzabe and the experience um, that they're having and draw conclusions that would influence our own life is um, some of the things that are just like a little bit more, um, you know, the way that we value, like being part of the community, the inclusivity, but also um, there's a relationship among the generations that I think that would really be beneficial to, to recreate or model in places like Philadelphia. So in uh, like a lot, you know, especially I had this experience with, you know, spending time with my grandmother, but a lot of times um, there is a huge separation between youth and middle age and elders in our, you know, East Coast reality. And the 
the separation is like lonely and it's you know not amazing for a lot of reasons it's also not sustainable so one of the things that you i noticed in yaeta was the way that the young children were taught how to use bows and arrows and how to do different um you know the active role of being part of the community they were learning from their elders and that the elders are being valued to be able to share their knowledge but they're also ensuring that the the next generation has the skills and the values to continue this certain way of life we don't really get to do that that much there's not like a lot of opportunity i think that in some um nordic european countries there's been some really positive um studies where they brought like preschool kindergarten age children into nursing homes and had some interactions and it's like really uplifting and positive but i think that we could really find more ways to have our elder generation instill skills and values into our younger generation to build that respect and to build that capacity i think could be a positive thing to learn from yayeta um i think that yayeta valley also um you know has the they have this program that's called the scout pro, the 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 scouts program so you know just to basically like really briefly like explaining the land that they're protecting that they're avoiding the deforestation they patrol and they monitor that land and this is where the whole link between tradition and innovation comes in because they know how to move through that land and that forest because of their ability to like they because they grew up there they know how to um be aware of the animals that pass through because of their skills of tracking that they've inherited from the other generations but they use this like gps system to track you know which trees are still standing because the trees are absorbing carbon from the atmosphere and the whenever they see animals they're like logging it into this gps system so they're using something very innovative very advanced in climate technology that connects to this satellite technology to be able to protect and monitor their forest so that's another thing that i think would is missing is um like when is the last time that in you know the philadelphia region or in pennsylvania region we have learned about a native american tradition that's still in use in a modern with along with some modern technology you know like we kind of don't have this awareness of how people lived on the land at a certain point sustainably and i think that there's some really great examples of people returning to the land in a way like permaculture and um having like you were saying like these um community share um agriculture programs where they you know you can grow food as a community and um have a delivery and it's really adapting something that's traditional to something that's modern and having the delivery services like really modern you know mm-hmm. those types of things i think that we could study and find out like but first what it means is we have to go back and like learn what what used to work and how can we adapt that to address the challenges that we're facing now and that interest um and those studies would be i think very beneficial for our culture 
um, in, in the Philadelphia area. Yeah. I think yeah. generational <clears throat> gaps or the lack of generational mingling in the United States and yeah. modernized Europe is mainly due to the fact that there, we have had such an advancement in technology that a 20 year period of our parents and our kids has massively changed the way we interact with each other and interact with ourselves, like our peers. And the fact that that skill set from our parents or our grandparents isn't translatable to many of the things we do today. But what is translatable is certain ethics, certain lessons, certain morals that we could learn from. Um, and I've, I've seen just in the last 10 years or so, maybe just my interest in it, but a return to understanding the land and having a relationship with it in the United States and the modern world. And it's not just people are asking where their food comes from, not just thinking, oh, a cereal comes from the grocery store. No, the cereal yeah. comes from a farm in Nebraska that mills grain and then is processed in Michigan and then gets to your grocery store in New Jersey. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, another thing that is is starting to happen, but that's really significant in what I noticed in the Ayata Valley is that, like, there's no waste. It's like that concept that there's something that you throw away. I mean, whether how you deal with the waste is a whole nother thing, but the fact that we have waste is like kind of laughable in, in other parts of the world. And in certain parts of the world, you use everything, you know, like when, when you like the, the, the Hadzabe, I was able to see um, a couple of different hunts and how they, you know, the obvious that you get the meat and the meat so, like nourishes a lot of people. But then it was like the fur and the skin and the intestines, like all the different parts that, you know, if that had, if it was like a deer that was hunted in like rural Pennsylvania, there was probably going to be a lot more parts like discarded, you know, nothing gets discarded, nothing goes to waste. The concept of waste is um, something that I think that we could explore and, you know, and it's, and do what, you know, I, these are all things that I want to learn how to improve on in my life too. It's like, you know, I'm inspired and it's always like after I visit a place that I'm super inspired, I try to like incorporate these things into my life and learn from them and see my life changing and evolving into something that I'm like more, more aligning with the values that I'm, admiring in the places that I'm studying. As we wrap up our conversation, um, can you tell us a little bit about your upcoming projects? Yeah. Um, it looks like you have one in Kenya and another one in Morocco. Yeah. So there's, those are two stories that I'm editing that I've already filmed. Um, and, and, and then I also, so basically in Kenya, there's an incredible project called the Flip Floppy. And um, basically, this is the story of, the, the, of, of a traditional dhow or sailboat that's made completely out of recycled plastic. And so it's a really beautiful story about adapting. So the, the person um, who I spend time with is named Ali Skanda, and he's an incredible man, really inspiring. And he is also... Um, the son and the grandson of master Dow builders or sailboat builders of the Swahili um, style of building these sailboats. And he 
was very much aware of how much plastic was polluting his island and how much it was impacting his community. And he just worked with, you know, he's part of a team, not only him, but I, um, he was able to kind of develop a way of collecting the plastic from the beaches, sending it to get melted. And they built these planks or they created these planks out of the, um, the recycled plastic. And then he did his traditional woodworking, but with this new material, built this incredible dow. And he's, they've already sailed once um, along the coast, but they have plans to go all the way down to Cape Town from you know Kenya to Cape Town. Wow. And they also would like to do a sail around the world. And the whole time that they're sailing, they're stopping and they're engaging with community um, and teaching about plastic pollution and what the you know, filling in the blanks and really empowering communities to be part of the positive change of uh, that's needed and, and mobilize individual action. So that story is beautiful, incredible. I love it. Um, I've known, I've been visiting with them for like two or three years now. I've been visiting Ali. So it's really like when the beginning, when I first visited him, it was very much under the radar. Now, you know, he, has been part of different UN um, events and his story has been on BBC, Al Jazeera. He's really like made a splash. <laughs> <laughs> and um, in the story in Morocco, I just got back actually like a week or two ago. Um, and in this story, it's a little bit different. I visited a couple different places, but the idea that I'm um, learning about in Morocco is how the empowerment of women is 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 not only a fundamental you know right it's actually the seed of sustainable development and so i'm exploring how in these uh, how empowering women um can and does create sustainable development and so i visit a all girls boarding school of young girls who are learning about resilient agriculture and a women's collective who are growing um, medicinal and aromatic plants and using resilient agriculture, but also really exploring what it means and how it works. And um, and and then I'll be traveling to Vanuatu in February, which is a place in the world that's really facing uh, climate challenges in a very extreme way. So um, with the sea level rise, with flooding, with a lot of different challenges that we hear, they it's very real for them. It's very much happening on their island. And so I'll be connecting with different communities and learning from them how they're surviving and what works, basically. And where can people watch these? Um, I have a YouTube channel that's called Evidence of Hope. And I also have a website that's called Evidence of Hope. Okay. <laughs> and so you can just, um, you know, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel, which is nice because then you can always know when there's a new um, film or short video that's being uploaded, or you can just check in on the website. You can follow me on Instagram or Facebook as well. And my name's Tasha Goldberg. Um, and the idea with Evidence of Hope is that, you know, the stories are meant to engage and to inspire. And eventually my big you know, dream of, of, of doing all this is I want to create a bank of hope. And this bank means that you can invest in it. You can, you know, withdraw from it. And it doesn't mean like, um, I mean that in, in a very metaphoric way. Like I want people to contribute 
and, and bring the stories that they see that are evidence of hope to the bank. I want people who are looking for ways to address their challenges to be able to derive inspiration from the bank. And, um, you know, it's all just beginning. This is the beginning of, of what I hope to be a really robust, full series. And, and um, I would love to hear feedback. So when you watch and you see the different videos, you know, please let me know and, and communicate and make this, this is for us and not just for me, not just for you, it's for all of us. So um, I'm excited to share evidence of hope. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us. And I can, I will provide some positive feedback on the Yaeta Valley short film. I loved it. I thought it was very well done. Thank and you. I am looking, I'm very much looking forward to your next films and I cannot wait to watch this grow. Thank Same. you. Yeah, it was, it's, it's been a ton of fun having you on. And I love what you're doing. It's very inspiring. Thank you. That means so much to me, you guys. Really, like, um, really. I think that it's, it's, it's such a privilege to share this and to begin to, like, open this up. And, um, and I'm excited to see it grow, too. <laughs> yeah. Hey, before you know it, it's going to be five years down the road, and it will be as big as you expect it. <laughs> Yes, yes, from your lips to God's ears, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> All, right. All right, well, um, yeah, thank you again for, for having me. And, you know, if anybody that's listening to the story has ideas, you know, feel free to reach out and, and share, you know, the evidence of hope that you see, that you want to see. Um, What's the best way for people to reach out to you? Is it email or through one of your social media accounts? Really, any any of the above is is totally fine. Um, the website is probably you know easy because there's a, a a way that you can just kind of send an email through the website. You're more than welcome to contact me through Instagram. Um, anything that works, you know. There's look, we're 2020, babes. We're all 2020. <laughs> you can reaching somebody is not a hard part. You know, like we're we're so accessible. So whatever way that you find evidence of hope, you can follow on Instagram. Um, if Instagram is under Tasha Goldberg, but the website and the YouTube channel are evidence of hope. All right. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was a very relatable conversation since I had spent that time in Tanzania also looking at sustainable development and learning how people lived off the land and maybe looking at ways ecotourism could help them versus you know agriculture and taking resources from the national park adjacent to them. Yeah, and it's projects like hers that are going to push people in the direction at least of thinking about sustainable development. <laughs> Elliot, why are you laughing? Um, no, it, 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 it's an incredible idea, and I love what she's doing. I love what she's aspiring to do, and I really hope, you know, in her vision, if when people watch these shows, if just a few of them pick it up and run in that direction with her, that's sort of how, it, how it's going to happen, how real change is going to happen. This is going to snowball. It's going to be a snowball effect. It's not, just going, to, it's not going to happen overnight, <clears throat> but it's just going to happen a little bit at a time. And, and she's, she's, I don't know if she's at the forefront of it, but she's contributing to it yeah. and i'm really happy to have talked to her and i hope evidence of hope becomes a movement um, it yeah. seems like with her and angel working in similar fields looking for the good in the world and looking for how people are making positive impacts not just for themselves but for 
everyone around them for humanity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the trivia question for Tasha is what dance did she perform for the Hadzabe tribe? And it was a little bit embarrassing for her, but Mm -hmm. she pulled through and she completed it and she was happy to have done it. It's a good question. Well, thank you for listening to the Travelers Blueprint. We appreciate it very much. We appreciate any review that you could leave us. It goes a long way in the growth of our show and we can't thank you enough for anyone that has reviewed our show in the past. Uh, continue to listen and, and we're glad to have you on board. 